0: We are going to dive into a subject this morning that is typically a difficult thing to talk about. I say typically, that's probably too light of a word. It's almost always a difficult thing to talk about. Um, we have been in a series called Asking for a Friend, and it was very simple. We just asked our friends, what questions do you have for the church? What questions do you wonder if the Bible addresses? And one of those questions that came back uh, that we built the series off of was, How do I explain racism to my child? Now, we've talked about racism a few times throughout the history of our church. We've preached sermons on racial reconciliation specifically. I've done that myself twice. Jared's done that twice. We had one other standalone sermon uh, after the shootings in Dallas, following uh, some shootings across the country that seemed to be week after week. And, And we've dove into this difficult subject before, but today... For some reason, it feels different to me. Uh, it's not a lot different, but it feels different because we're not just talking about racial reconciliation, which in some, in some ways seems easy to address from Scripture. We're talking specifically about racism, uh, this evil that, that is really everywhere in our country and in the world. And so I want to um, pray again, even though we just prayed, uh, because I know I need it and I want to ask the Lord to prepare us all. Uh, so let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, that you have got us here in this place, that, that you have designed it that your church could gather and given us the freedoms in this country to do so, and, and I pray that we would gather more than just on a Sunday morning, but I'm, I'm thankful for this time to teach from your word what it is you'd have, you have for us to know, uh, but more than that, uh, a truth that can, can be active and living in our life that can change us and and that we could be used by you present as the body of Christ to see this world come to know you and and have their lives changed and be a part of this restorative work of all things, that you didn't just die so we could go to heaven, but you were restoring everything. So I pray that you would make these things clear to us this morning as we dive into a difficult subject, and that you would help me to be gracious and patient and remember how gracious and patient you've been to me that you would help us all to focus in on these things uh, with, with a, a humility to lean into them, to have ears open, that we'd have eyes open, that we'd be awakened to the truth of your gospel and how it works and moves in our lives and changes who we are from the inside out. All these things for your glory, that, that Christ would be exalted, the gospel would be the center of it all, and that we'd leave here worshiping Jesus more. In, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Alright, so humility, unity, justice, love, some of these, these core things to our faith, foundational things to our faith. Love, that not just love in, in an ethereal sense, but loving God in action. Loving God with our hearts, mind, and soul, and, and might. Loving people, not just any people, but our neighbors. And, and that means anyone you come across. And loving people, not just that we like, but even our enemies. These are all things in Scripture that we don't really disagree with. They're concepts and attributes that directly combat racism. Clear in Scripture. I think everyone would agree those things are clear in Scripture. So then what's the problem? Like, Why is there still racism? right? And I think the answer is easy. easy. We, we don't believe the gospel. Like, How to then change it isn't so easy, but that's the answer. We're not centering our lives around the gospel that would change that. So we're going to look at that this morning. Again, the question on the screen, how do you how do I explain racism to my child? Just briefly, I want to cover the to my child part. Parenting is hard. I pause so you could say amen. Parenting is hard. Amen. It's very difficult. There's so much weight, so much pressure, so much responsibility to shape the future of your children, right? They kids are resilient. Like you can drop them a couple times, they'll bounce back. But time is, is brief. They grow up quickly. I know time is relative in that sense, but they grow up quickly. It's like you blink and they're grown and all your defects are present in them somehow. And my kids are young and I already see it. It's hard being a parent. And then, of course, to compound that with our self-centered desire to be perfect in parenting or at least appear to be perfect. So then we fake a lot of things or act like it's not hard. That way other people will think we're awesome at it. It's complex and it's difficult. Parenting is hard. We carry the weight of preparing our kids and then we have to send them off. And, and we want to protect them and we want to guide them. We want to teach them good things and not bad things. We reflect on our parents whether they were good or bad and we try to do the good things and not the bad things and we learn from books we read and from the culture, what it teaches us. And we, we even we learn some morals from Scripture that we can force them to obey. And we create these systems. Parenting is hard, though. And we usually mess it up. We always mess it up. And so it's, it's imperative that we learn, case by case, limited by all our sinful nature, combating against the new nature, it's imperative that we learn this gospel-centered parenting like to center everything around grace and truth and and obedience is important and discipline is important but it's done in love. There's beauty there, there's peace there. Centering everything around the gospel means that we realize our kids are not our own, but they belong to God and we're stewarding them. And so when we have that kind of responsibility, it's different stewardship is different than this is all on me. You're still very much responsible. You are your kid's parents and you know them best and you are their primary disciple maker, but they they belong to God, so trust him. He's given them to you and you can trust that he has equipped you to parent them simply by the fact that they're in your life. So continue to learn, lean in, figure out how to be a parent, but always understand you're going to fail and God's gracious. He's faithful always, and I realize some here don't have kids, and others, your kids are grown, so it's too late, sorry. Um, But I want to address this topic, how do I teach my kids about racism broadly so that anyone here could benefit, and so we're going to talk primarily about race and racism, but like you would with anything, I I hope that you can figure out how to condense this then and teach it to your children. And I am going to offer you some some action steps at the end, uh, just to kind of demonstrate A combative nature against sin altogether, but specifically against the sin of racism. And why does it matter? Well, uh, I love the assumption, first of all, that we should be teaching our kids about racism. That's assumed in the question. I love that it's there because I believe, as missionaries, if we believe we're changed by the gospel and then we're to be reconcilers in the world as missionaries, we need to understand the tensions in our culture. And racism, no doubt, is a major tension in our culture. Speaker writer historian Jamar Tisby, also co-host of the podcast Pass the Mic, says the worst conversation adults can have with their kids about race is no conversation at all. Talking to kids about race needs to happen early, often, and honestly. So early, often, and honestly happens in families of color because you don't have an you don't have an option. It's going to come up early and often, and you got to be honest about it. I think typically white families don't have to talk about race because it doesn't seem to affect them directly as often. Now, just just so we can have this out there, I'm going I'm to ask you to be gracious with me this morning because talking about a subject like this. You have to use generalizations. So, so I'm going to talk about white people and black people in a general sense. Obviously, there's nuance, and you I don't want to hear anyone come up to me and be like, not all white people afterwards, okay? I know that. I know some white people. I am aware. Yes. So, I'm going to use some general, generalizations. Also, I'm going to say black and white. There's a lot of options. You can, you can choose different words. Technically, black people are brown, and white people are like this pinkish, tannish color. But I'm going to say black and white, because that's going to help the conversation, and I want to move quickly, so... I'm gonna use general terms. I also am aware that there are other people of color, but the tensions in our country are primarily black and white, at least right now they are, and I really think because of the history of our country, if we don't deal first with the black and white issue, we can't really deal with the other issues. So they all kind of run together. And We're gonna eventually need to have a conversation about everything, and so I don't want anyone to feel left out um, because the tensions are there. All right, so now why do we have to teach early, often, and honestly? Because social norms are taught Another caveat. (laughs) I'm going to teach some history and some sociology. I'm not an expert in either of those things. We're going to get to the Bible. We're going to talk about scriptures, what scripture has to say about these things. But it's important that we understand as missionaries, sociology and history. So sociologically, social norms are taught implicitly, primarily taught implicitly. So kids learn from their, their environment. They learn from social cues. Whether you explicitly have the conversation or not, they're going to learn... How to be biased racially. And we know this to be the case because it's been tested and proven by psychologists throughout, throughout decades of study. Uh, the earliest account uh, that I found is something called the Dahl test. Maybe you've heard of this in the 40s. This was actually uh, some empirical evidence used in Brown versus Board to, to demonstrate separate is not equal. Um, but in the, early, in the late 40s, a test was done called the doll test. Basically, there was, they took children as young as four or five, and they put them down at a desk and said, a white doll and a, and a black doll in front of them. And they said, which doll is black? Which doll is white? Which doll is ugly? Which doll is pretty? Which doll is smart? Which doll is dumb? Which doll is nice? Which doll is bad? Very simple questions to where the kid could just point to one doll or the other. This test definitively demonstrated the implicit bias that American children are learning is that White is good, smart, pretty, and black is bad, dumb, and ugly. Now, obviously, this is a difficult thing to process. Um, Trying to understand implicit education is difficult altogether. Um, But what's tragic is these aren't the children of KKK members. These are good parents who love their children and just aren't talking about race. Moreover, it's not just white children, but the black children as well demonstrate the same sort of bias towards whiteness. White is good, white is pretty, white is smart. So what that means is, that's how they view themselves. Now you might be thinking that's the 40s. Of course, that's before civil rights. Well, a test has been done as recent as 2010, alongside CNN, a remake of the Dahl test, where they use a spectrum of dolls and they had children do the same thing in various ages and the test among white children was almost exactly the same results as the 40s test and black children showed some improvement but still mostly biased towards whiteness now there are other tests i'll just give you you can google search doll test but you can also search implicit bias or subconscious racial bias You can search the name Jane Elliott, who's done a lot of work in this this field. She's not an expert either. She's a school teacher, and she noticed these things in children. Um, And she conducts a test called the blue-eye-brown-eye test that has been effective in helping people see some implicit biases. So I tell you that because I want you to see clearly, this is the air we breathe. This is American culture. This is what our society communicates intentionally or unintentionally right now is irrelevant the point is this is how we're learning this is how we're being shaped and if we don't intentionally proactively work against it this is what we're communicating to our children america was founded with some deistic principles i don't believe they were christian but some deistic principles and and that included this myth of white supremacy it's not just a term being thrown out there but explicitly documented in the founding Fathers' writings is this idea that European descent was naturally God-given superiority, had natural God-given superiority. And so as a result, all non-European de- descendants could be you know erased so we could take their land or, or purchased from their, their own people so that we could build a new land. It was a way of dealing with this cognitive dissonance that I know human, humans are... are sacred. I know humanity has dignity because God created them, so I'll just dehumanize certain people in order to not feel bad about it. That's kind of a simplistic way of seeing it, but that's kind of what happened. And racism then was institutionalized in our country early on, even before the founding of our country and chattel slavery. It has shape-shifted into Jim Crow following the Civil War and some laws that were changed. Jim Crow era came about where people were segregated. Uh, And and it was explicitly clear. You could still see the institution of racism. It was very explicit. Uh, And then civil rights movement. And about 50 years ago, the laws were changed and rewritten and and revised and amended in different ways. And racism disappeared. Of course, that's not the case. Although some some would argue we are post-racial. We had a black president after all. I think, that, I think that if we think it's gone, we have to be delusional. You have to just be willfully ignorant and ignore very present tensions. We don't have to argue about what's causing it or what do we do about it even, but let's at least admit it's present. To give us a break from that for a second, let's consider ethnicity in Scripture. I believe there's some clue to the creation of ethnicity uh, if we look at the sons of Noah. And though this is misapplied by some heretics who would claim all black people are direct descendants of Israel, which I don't believe is true, and some other heretics who would claim all descendants of Ham, one of the sons of Noah, are cursed, and so then, therefore we can enslave them. Um, and there's still some heresies floating around about these these ideas. I think there is some clue here. If we look at in Genesis 10, if you want to open to Genesis 9, 10, and 11, you can. I'm not going to read directly from it, but I want you to see it. There's a list of some 70 names or so. I didn't count them, but there's somewhere around 70 names. And within the middle of that, um, there is this story that you've likely heard, the Tower of Babel, of Babylon, in which we know God confused the language and, and sent the people on their way. They grouped up with the language they spoke. And so I point out the sons of Noah because uh, we, we can deduce by the names listed under these sons, Japheth the middle son. Um, his name comes first because Shem is the most important for the story. And so I'll get to that in a second. Japheth the middle son is the father of the Europeans. Again, generaliza- generally the father of the Europeans based on his list of names and some other contexts we see in Scripture. Ham is the father of Africans. And Shem is the father of Asians, including the Far East and the Middle East, which would include Jesus. So Shem carries the line of Israel, and he is the elder brother. This is general, I think, obviously, and arguably it's conjecture, but I think it makes sense. If you don't know, within black families, there are shades of colors. Uh, Even from the same gene pool, you can have a really dark brother and a really light brother. So if you didn't know, there you go. Some people as light or lighter than me in the black community and some darker than Ebony. But they can all be a part of the same family group. There's just variations in shades. It happens in white families, too, I know. There's some olive skin kids who get tan in the summer and some who just get burned in the same family. Like, How did that happen? I understand. point is, it's reasonable to consider Noah had children of different shades. It's reasonable. Uh, especially when you consider some of the language behind the name choice. And then, of course, when you look at the genealogy, uh, we know that some of these nations, for example, from Ham are African nations and, um, and Shem are, is the line of Israel. So we have some lighter people, we have some medium people, and we have some darker people. And it's also reasonable to consider the way the culture worked back then as people would inbreed a lot. God later addresses it, but there's a lot of maintaining the family line going on. So these families would would have children with their brothers and sisters and cousins. And as the, as the world was populated, we had different shades of people, and Babylon happened. They built a tower, and God came down, and he confused their language. Now, I only point this out not because I want to make some hard case that, that we have black people, white people, and brown people because of this, or not because I think it's even necessary that we understand how it worked, but I want to be clear the Bible has answers for these things. We don't have to depend on theories from science. In fact, I believe science helps demonstrate what the Bible's known all along. Interestingly, scientists recently, relatively recently, were shocked to discover that through mitochondrial DNA studies, we share some common ancestors, most likely in the Middle East, to which anyone who believes the Bible would say that's not a surprise at all. We can even tell you their names. Next week, we're going to talk a little more about science and faith. I'm excited about that. But for now, there is is a need to just lean in and understand all truth belongs to God. So when we study history, when we study culture, when we study science, all truth, anything we discover is true, is God's. It belongs to Him. He designed it that way. And there's certainly some truth to the fact that the regions you live in and the foods you eat and how much sun you get has influence on your skin tone. So where these people ended up in the world certainly matters. and certainly affects the way they look, but God designed it all. It's also good to point out ethnicity is somewhat distinct from race because race is very much a social construct, whereas ethnicity is evident in Scripture created by God in that it takes on not just how you look, but how you speak. Your language and your cultural norms and your heritage is encompassed in the word ethnicity. So that means white people have ethnicity too. So when we talk about ethnic food, you need to include some white people foods. Everybody has ethnicity. In fact, we have historically divided race along ethnic lines. In America, there's certain white groups that were outcast and oppressed because of their ethnicity. The Irish were oppressed and they're white. The Jews were oppressed. Modern Jews are white. And over time, society changes Cultural norms change and how we view race changes. So race, very much a social construct, was developed in order to position power. It's to categorize people and describe value to that category. And it changes along the lines of society. So now, whether you're Irish or Jewish or whatever, you're just white. Now, I encourage you to research your, your heritage, understand your ethnicity because there's goodness there. And then, of course, to God, if we remain in Scripture, to God, we are one people. As we heard this morning, the human race is our race. With beauty and diversity, we are one race, truly. As believers, we see more than that. We are a chosen race. We're a holy nation. This is First Peter 2. And in heaven, we see in John's vision, Revelation 7:9, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne, before the Lamb. It's apparent that we have diversity in our language and our skin tones. We look different to John who's seeing this vision of heaven clothed in white robes, united under and in Christ. We are the people of God, a chosen race with a lot of diversity. So it's not as if God... He's going to just wipe it clean and start over back with brown people because that's how it started. He's going to maintain this way we look and unite us as his chosen people. And the word in in that passage, holy nation, nation is ethnos, that's ethnicity. So though we see the brokenness in the world and all, all its all the disunity caused by it, all the divisions that that are present because of race and these constructs of society. God is about making things new, bringing things back together, restoring the broken things. And he's faithful to do that. And we certainly can trust him. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start talking a little faster because, whew, got a long way to go. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is to the Gentiles, but we can consider it to us because everyone here is a Gentile unless you have some descent from Israel that I don't know about. Starting with verse 12 in Ephesians 2. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both, or we could say all, ethnic groups. One, and he made us all one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In the flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressions and regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two or from the many, resulting in peace. He's tearing down these walls of hostility. This is the work of the gospel. In individual lives and in our society, God is tearing down these walls that divide us And it's painful and it's difficult, but the gospel accomplishes reconciliation first for us vertically with our father. And then he sends us to do this work of reconciliation horizontally with the world that's broken all around us. This is the work of the gospel. We're family. We're one. There's peace now, but there's work to be done. It's an already not yet gospel. Now, it seems then the solution for racism would be if it divides us, let's just act like it's not there. Just treat everyone the same, you know. I don't see color. I just see everybody the same. It sounds right. After all, Galatians 3, 27, 28. For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. It sounds like that's talking about this colorblind theory. Let's just act like we don't see color. That way, everything will be good. But that's actually the Lord's perspective, not ours. This is God saying, I see Christ clothed. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I see Jesus when I look at you so that you're not held accountable. You've been delivered. He died. He became sin. You became the righteousness of God. Now he's clothed you. This is how he sees you. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Greek or, or slave or free or male or female. You are Jesus clothed human being. This is how the gospel works. This is, this is how it works vertically. Horizontally, certainly, you can tell if someone's a male or female when you look at them. Amen. And certainly, you can see their color. I believe colorblindness, I want to be gentle here because it's held dear by some. I believe colorblindness, though, is a means for dealing with racism that is faulty at the very least. It falls short. Should we love everyone the same? I think you would expect me to say yes, but we'd have to rightly understand what love is. So I think kind of. I think certainly it's accurate to say we should value everyone the same. Everyone has the same dignity. Everyone should have the same rights. But should we treat everybody the same? We should treat them equally, but the same. Biblically, in humility, actually, we consider others more important than ourselves. That's Philippians 2. Our society doesn't function in the way the scripture commands us to function. And so I think we need to understand love is contingent upon how someone experiences life. For example, I love my children. They're very different. So that love manifests itself in different ways. They're equal to me. I value them the same, but it's different. There will come a day when they grow. I'm going to have different conversations with my son than I would with my daughter. I'm going to need to be available for them in different ways. Titus. I love to punch Titus with gloves. We have boxing gloves. We box. I'm probably not going to punch my daughter, even if she begs me to box her. If I do, I'm going to take it easy. With Titus, I don't let up. You understand that there's differences here and so in culture in a culture that has historically devalued blackness and elevated whiteness as a matter of social norm but and, and law for centuries being all of a sudden equal because of the civil rights movement seems a little extreme like even if you say it's true does it really play out that way We've not yet addressed a lot of systemic issues, and so I don't even think it's possible. I think we have to have more than equality. We have to have equity. Now, there's a lot of discussion that needs to happen on what that is, but there must be justice. I'm not sure what that looks like. And I don't, I don't think this is the time to have that conversation. Um, but, but Leonce Crump, a pastor I follow in Atlanta, says, Reconciliation requires the defrauded parties be made whole. So if we rightly understand reconciliation, we need to understand it's more than just, I'm sorry, you're equal now. So colorblindness, while well-intended, is largely unhelpful. It, can be a solution. it can't be a solution because uh, it, it has to at least ignore what is present, the tensions and the disparities that are present. And frankly, I think for some, it's just a cop-out to avoid the conversation. We don't want to deal with the grief and the difficult things. So we can't address sin if we're blind to it. That's the point. And race is no, race, racism is no doubt a sinful thing. Moreover, I think it actually leaves people feeling unloved because they're ignored. An important part of them, aspect of who they are and their experience is ignored. Saying, I don't care if you're black, white, purple, polka dot it. It's all the same to me. It doesn't matter to me. That sort of, that sort of comment can sound right from the person speaking it, but it can feel very hurtful uh, from the person hearing it. Because I actually want you to care. About what I look like. I want you to care about my experience. I want you to see my race and think it's beautiful. And I believe that's God's design that we would have diversity and we'd see it and we'd recognize it and we'd celebrate it. Jesus has put racism to death. Once and for all, it was accomplished on the cross, yet he is continuing to put it to death one day at a time. And that's how we take it, one day at a time. We see the glorious unity with diversity that God brings us together. We see it in John's vision. We aim for it. And until then, we are about the restorative work of the gospel. That's the people of God in every way seeking to restore the kingdom. We want to bring eternity into the present. That's the work of the church. So that said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a revolt against the government. I don't think that can be the answer. Ephesians 6 makes that clear in verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. We battle an enemy that does not look like us. People are not your enemy. They're your long lost brothers and sisters. They are afflicted by sin in every way you are afflicted by sin. We are fighting against something far greater than us, but not greater than our Lord. So we must depend on Him. We go to Him again and again to to nourish us when we feel victimized and to free us when we feel like the the victimizer. We go to Him again and again to have everything we need to address the problems in this world because it's all in His hands. He's got it all. He's got everything we need and He always has had it. And He's about giving his children everything they ask for to fight these battles. Our enemy knows this. He knows that race divides us and he's skilled at using it against us. That's why it pains me to see the church divided. Now we need to speak specifically to racism because that was the question. What is racism? And I think in order to explain racism to your children, you need to understand what racism is yourself. It seems much of the tension that exists in conversations I try to have with people is we're not talking about the same thing. And so what is racism? I'm going to define it like this, and then we'll break it down in some other ways. It's the belief that all members of each race possess attributes or abilities specific to that race, especially so as to distinguish it from as inferior or superior to other races. That's racism. It was created as a means of assigning value in a caste system. It's a sinful, this is a a more biblical definition, a sinful proclivity, which is different than a propensity. That's like an inclination. A proclivity is like, this is ingrained. Like this is a strong desire. It's a sinful proclivity deeming another individual or group of image bearers as inferior on the basis of race. So it's a class system based on skin color, but not just skin color, also hair, hair texture and facial features. This was actually written out and designed by some pseudoscientists to determine the different classes of races. And it manifests itself individually and and systemically. But according to the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. So all men were created in the image of God. All men and women are image bearers of God. Malachi 2.10. Don't All of us have one Father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenants of our fathers? Aren't we all brothers and sisters? Acts chapter 17, we read it at the top of the the worship service. We we see clearly, this this is Paul preaching to the Greeks. He's preaching to a people who worship a different God. He's noticing the differences. And Luke records this sermon. He says in verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands or paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. Everyone has life and breath from God. From one man, he has made every nationality, every ethnos, every ethnicity, To live over the whole earth as determined in their appointed times and boundaries where they would live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Our God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. He knew we'd have this situation. He knew the tensions would exist. He even designed it so it would function that way. Why? So that we would seek Him. So that we would come to know Him. So the struggle's real, the tensions are real, and we are at work combating them, but all of it points us back to God who designed it this way. And this makes racism explicitly anti-biblical, anti-Christian, and just really dumb it's a made up thing to cause division when our God is about unity. Nevertheless, it exists, so we have to be faithful missionaries and address it. In order to rightly understand the gospel truth that should be brought to the conversation, I want to define it for you in three categories. I think this is profoundly helpful, but it may also go over your head. So I I don't want to I don't want this to be a conversation that ends here. I hope that we can continue the dialogue, especially if you're leaning in and wanting to learn. So I'm going to define it and I'm going to try to be brief, but you could really go on and on about each of these categories. And in fact, they overlap. They're part of one thing. It's racism. But I want to try to break it up so we can understand it a little better. First of all, there's what we most commonly think of interpersonal racism. And I defined it like this. Prejudice on a personal level. So it's it's individualistic. Predetermined attitudes, that's prejudice. Predetermined attitudes about a group or an individual member of that group. On a personal level, so it's leveled, so it's discrimination which is treating individuals unequally because of the group they belong to, discrimination and or antagonism, which is being actively hostile towards someone of another group because you view your own race as superior. So it's prejudice on a personal level, which includes discrimination and antagonism. It's often associated with hatred, but I think it could easily be in conjunction with fear or discomfort or general suspicion. It doesn't have to be that you hate other races but you're in general suspicious and you think that you're better. So it's very much pride. It's the sin that everything, everything flows out of. It's this, I think highly of myself. So what race am I? That has to be the best race. And if we don't catch those sinful thoughts, they run rampant and we begin to believe some things in our society. And it's, it's natural for Westerners to uh, specifically Westerners, to focus on the individualized part of racism, to deal with the individuals, to see every situation as individualistic, to understand every encounter with racism as that individual's problem. And that's why we most commonly re- refer to interpersonal racism, and it, it's it's okay to do that. We definitely see that. We've seen it in KKK members recently marching down the streets of Charlottesville and their white shirts and khakis, which is a really weird uniform, and tiki torches, which is a weird instrument. I don't know why they chose those things. But they marched through this city shouting very explicitly racist things, shouting of their own superiority. You'd have to be completely willfully ignorant to not point at that and say that's racism. Without hesitation, though some, somehow some people hesitate to say, that's racist. They can't even say that seems racist. It's it's explicit racism. They hate other races. They see themselves as superior. It's very clear. But it's not just that kind of thing. Sometimes it's stuff that's not so easily condemned. Sometimes it's things that you can just look over because that's their heritage, that's their history, that's how they were raised. And you don't address it because, you know, they're going to die soon or whatever you tell yourself. Sometimes it's even, even more vague and ambiguous, and it's more like a concerned parent who doesn't want their white daughter dating someone of another race because of how other people might look at it and it's going to complicate their lives. And by other race, they mean specifically black. Sometimes it's very vague and coded. Sometimes it's so ambiguous and maybe purely psychological that tensions seem to exist where maybe they shouldn't. When people get pulled over, or walk through a convenience store, or feel someone staring at them. Sometimes you want to say, this feels racist, but you know if you say it, they're going to say, why are you playing the race card? So you don't. And that's just compiled on a million other things that may or may not be racist, that cause so much conflict and difficulty in processing life and just walking down the street in this nation. It's present. We don't always see it. Secondly, and I think more importantly, as we consider what it looks like for the church to address racism, is societal racism. The word racism, as an ism, is by definition philosophical and systemic. So that means social and political institutions can be dubbed with this term. They serve to primarily benefit those who hold power, which is, in our country, the majority race white people. So in society, it makes sense that you would benefit the majority. It makes sense. I'm not saying it's hateful. Remember, it doesn't have to be hateful, but it makes sense that you would benefit the majority, which in our country is the majority race is white. So that is it's maintained both intentionally and unconsciously. So there's this implicit nature about it, but no doubt there is explicit intentionality in maintaining the power. Just because they want to maintain status quo, which means keep the power where it is. Naturally, this negatively affects those who are in minority races. So I really, I know there's tension around this idea, but I really want there to be just a common sense way of seeing it. That majority race rules, and that's why systems are in favor of the majority. It just so happens that because of that, minorities suffer. Systemic racism is... is often accused of just being subjective or ambiguous but I think there's statistical and empirical evidence to demonstrate it if you just look at the disparities in race regarding for example wealth, income, criminal justice, employment, housing, health care, political power, uh, corporational power, and education among other things. If you just look at how many minorities are in leadership in these places or how many minorities are in prison or how many minority women die in child labor or It goes on and on. If you just look at statistically the imbalance, the disparities, I don't know how you deny that the system is in favor of one race over another. Now, again, we need to try to hold back the emotions and just observe it. It's not about white people hating black people. It's about a broken system. It's about many broken systems. Because we have a history of institutionalizing racism. No one can deny we've done that. Clearly, it was done in slavery. Clearly, it was done in Jim Crow. So now that it's gone because of this civil rights movement, which I'm grateful for, that changed laws, we've not seen hearts change. We've not seen systems change altogether. Certainly, things are slowly improving, though it seems like we've taken steps backwards recently. What's clear is there's a, a lack of reparations and there's a lack of attention because we want to argue about whether or not it exists. And as I mentioned, there's also psychological effects. So question before the third one, can black people be racist? (laughs) Y'all are like, answer, please. Uh, Kind of. I think yes and no. So certainly black people can be racially biased. They can think highly of themselves and down on others. Certainly they can make white people feel uncomfortable because they think it's funny. Certainly, but when we consider systemic issues, minorities can't have power. The minority doesn't have the power. They don't build the structures. So systemically, it would seem black people can't be racist. And I would even say that because of an interpersonal racism that exists within the system that is systemically racist, uh, there is some argument, reasonable argument, when you're looking at racism, the term racism, whether or not it could be applied to a minority ever. I think there's a legitimate argument there because of the ways in which systems favor majority. And what exactly do you mean when you say racist? That's why we're trying to define this term. If you mean, can you hate other races, then yes. If you mean, can you think you're better than others, then yes. But as as was demonstrated in the Dahl test and other tests, what black people most likely believe is what the system has been teaching them their whole life. Black is inferior. So maybe they're angry and that's why they hate white people. Maybe they're feeling stuck and that's why it lashes out the way it does. But we need to rightly understand racism before we toss around the term. I think in general, just don't call people racist. Like, let's just address the problem, but it's such a charged word that it causes more problems. And so finally, as we try to understand how it makes us feel, the third one is internalized racism. Oh, goodness. Just got to take a breath for a second. Internalized racism is difficult to talk about, and I, it's because it's, it's so personal and emotional. Uh, but I think that it's important if we want to understand why people act the way they act. And so it's this unconscious, though sometimes conscious, acceptance of the lie that race determines our value especially which, in which whiteness, which is an ideology, not just having white skin, especially one in which whiteness is superior to blackness. So it affects white people in this way. White people tend to, generally, uh, when they wrestle with racism, tend to feel conflicted or guilty or helpless or angry or resistant or willfully ignorant. And sometimes, in what seems like a right response, they have this man-centered pity that comes across as a hero, which is still very much a superiority. Like, I have what you need. I can save you. And it's intentionally communicating uh, you're less than me. It's very condescending, uh, and that makes it more difficult. It produces, so, so the white response, it produces bigots who are clearly racist, and it produces uh, the superior white savior. Both are racist. There's a lot to talk about, I know not know. Effects of black, on black people, um, assimilation, So there's an abandoning of identity and culture, there's shame, there's self-loathing, there's hopelessness, again, same as white uh, response, there is fear, there's depression, there is physical health problems, Uh, there's also within the black community, tribalism and colorism, we want to like decide who's better than others, if you're darker, you're lighter, Uh, there's this self-segregation that happens uh, in communities where you just try to sit with people who you feel most comfortable with. Uh, there's all kinds of problems when we've internalized the lie. So we need liberation from the lies. We need liberation from the sin that afflicts the nation. We need liberation from the sin within each of us that makes us biased towards our own race or identifying primarily with racial things instead of gospel things. We need freedom. We address all of this with gospel. Gospel proclamation brings liberation. I didn't intend to rhyme that. It just did. We need freedom. Freedom. Because all of us are feeling hopeless in this. All of us are feeling tension. All of us want this sermon to end. Can we just stop talking about it? Let's act like it's not there. We just can't do that because it's here. And we address it with the gospel like all sin. We put racism to death because Christ has put it to death. He has something better for us. If we would just stop this bickering about it. Listen, the church is suffering because we're divided over race. We are not as healthy as we could be. We are not as glorious of a display of God as we should be because this is not the demographics of our city. And if it's not racism, again, not this I hate black people racism or I hate white people racism, but if it's not implicit racism, that we just normally function in ways that we're drawn to certain people, we live near certain people, again, because of structural racism, we work with certain people who look more diverse than our church. We go to school with certain people. If you're in private school, again, systems of racism have put those in place. We can make it about criticism. We can make it about blaming. We can try to find the answers, but the gospel is what we need. Everyone individually believing what is true and then seeing it doesn't stop there. Holistic gospel proclamation isn't just doctrine or epistemology. It's not just theories. Holistic gospel is action. Action. If you believe this to be true, you would move to action to do something about it. That's how the gospel works. Jesus never, anywhere in Scripture, never calls people to follow him philosophically or follow him in word or follow him in spirit. He says, lay down everything, pick up your cross and follow me. All of you belongs to Jesus. He owns you. This is how it works. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're a slave to God. The life you now live in the flesh, you live for Christ because he loved you so much he gave himself to purchase you you belong to Jesus every second of your life every breath you breathe it's not yours it's his and i need this gospel preached back to me because there are days when i am so confused i can't i can't even explain to myself much less to you what it feels like to be both black and white in a country so divided by black and whiteness i don't there's so much tension there's times I just want to weep and lament because of the brokenness. But the lamenting comes to an end and we move to action. But when I'm ready to move to action, for some reason, we're not moving. There's a lot of good books on this to describe the, the, the means by which we have to dismantle racism because it's like we're walking on one of those moving sidewalks at the airport. And you got to stop walking. But even once you stop walking, you're still moving towards it so you got to turn around. you got to walk the other way. And if you're not walking fast enough, you're still going to be moving in the same spot. So you got to start to dismantle this thing so we can make progress. It's complex. But it's clear to me in Scripture that pursuing racial reconciliation is an implication it's an implication as in it flows out of right gospel belief pursuing racial harmony is walking in step with the truth of the gospel that's galatians 2 it's not just being conformed to the ways of the world but it's fighting against that and being transformed by the work of the spirit by the renewing of your mind that's romans 12 it's it's loving what is good and hating what is evil that's later in romans 12 it's abstaining from the passions of the flesh waging war against our soul It's seeking shalom for our city. It's loving our neighbor. It's loving our enemy. It's loving our Lord with heart, soul, and mind. It's doing justice, embracing kindness, and walking humbly with God. All of those things are things of action. And and no doubt, this is a spiritual issue. We must depend on the work of the Spirit. We don't have what it takes to fight this. We must prioritize praying. Isaiah Adams, host of United We Pray, a podcast I highly recommend, United We Pray, is all about recognizing the tensions and then praying. It's the only podcast I've ever heard that they actually pray. He says, we must do more than pray, but we must not do less. I asked around some parents of of children who are um, mixed race in their family or they have raised children of color, or I've asked some parents who raise only white kids, um, just how do you talk to your kids? Ask them the question that we're answering. How do you talk to your kids about racism? Just to to help inform the sermon. And in fact, much of what I had to say was informed by that, but also have some action steps I want to give you as I finish. Uh, Five action steps um, that I I learned from others, but also do myself, and and I've kind of just synthesized them. So if you're one of those parents, you're not going to hear your words quoted, but I've synthesized them into these. First of all, We don't ignore race, we celebrate it. When your kids say in Walmart, they say, look at that brown person, and it's awkward. Instead of denying it, no, that person's not brown, we don't see color. Instead of pretending like their assessment is false, how about we celebrate the brown skin? How about we talk about how beautifully creative God is? How about we say, isn't it amazing that God created all of us with such unique beauty? Is that so hard? I don't understand how, how ignoring it, particularly like it's not there, is somehow better. I just don't get it. Maybe, it's, maybe that points more to the convictions you're not dealing with when it comes to race. There's a very excellent book written by Trillian Newbell, the other host of United We Pray called God's Very Good Idea, a true story about God's delightful Difference, different family. It's well well illustrated, but just well written and just celebrating God's beautiful creativity. Highly recommend this. I'll leave this up here so you can check it out. If you steal it, I'll forgive you, but please don't. Um, So talk to your kids about how beautiful diversity is. Second, we deal with the trauma. Like I mentioned, lamenting is necessary in this. Mourning, the things that need to be more and acknowledging the perspectives and emotions of others are legitimate. When you deal with people who've suffered trauma, you have to acknowledge their, their perspective, their experience, their emotions are real. Whether you agree with them or not is irrelevant. Race is not a card to be played because racism is not a game. So just telling someone they're playing the race card is detrimental. If someone feels hurt, betrayed, or belittled, it's legitimate whether you agree or understand. So mourning the brokenness is a must. So for those in, who have had a history of feeling victimized, there are ways in which we need to have the conversation and aware of that sort of trauma. But I think there's also trauma experienced by the victimizer. I've, I've recently began to describe it like finding out your grandfather was a serial murderer. It's been a secret in your family and you found out. Or, or maybe you found out he was stealing people, put, forcing them to labor, and then one day setting them free and pretending like it was no big deal. Like your grandfather, if you found that out, it's not guilt on you. Like you didn't do it. I get it. You didn't have slaves. You didn't do it. I get it. But certainly there's some emotions to work through. There's some trauma type emotions to work through. And so I think it would do us all well to understand both white people and black people are traumatized by racism. And if we approach it like that, then we'll be kinder to one another. We'll be patient. We'll be understanding much more than we were before. So we have to deal with the trauma. Time alone doesn't heal trauma. We must lament. We must go to God. Lamenting is is yelling at God, telling Him this right here is a painful thing. But it's doing it in a way that knows your Father hears you and He has the power to change it. So it's faithful to lament. It's not demonstrating doubt in God. It's actually demonstrating faith. Third, we must educate and be educated and never stop learning about this. No one has it figured out. No one's perspective is perfect. Everyone has blind spots. So study history and teach your kids history. Tour museums, read books, join social networks. And and on Facebook there's lots of private groups that talk about these things. Watch movies and documentaries and then break it down and talk about it. Utilize experiences that you have like that that woman's skin is brown type of conversations. Utilize those to leverage moments that you can teach. Don't just ignore it and pretend like it's not there because they're gonna learn implicitly. Take advantage of those moments in Light of Gospel Hope. And a book that does that really well is published by a group called Patrol. They did a Kickstarter that we supported, so we got this for supporting that. I almost said free, but we supported the Kickstarter, so it's not free. Uh, The book's called The Gospel in Color, written by Curtis Woods and Jarvis Williams. They're both uh, African-American men who are uh, employed and beautifully uh, articulate and incredibly intelligent, and all the things you would be surprised to come out of a black man, because that's how we often see things, it's racist. This is a good example to throw in there. (laughs) Sorry, it was not written down. It just slipped out. Okay, Curtis and Jarvis are both professors at Southern Seminary. Solid doctrine at that seminary. Well-rounded, gospel-centered people wrote a book specifically on this question. And I read it, um, I skimmed over it really this week. They have two, one for parents and one for kids. Uh, The kids one, they recommend if your kid is 10 and older, they can read it on their own. You can just talk about it. Um, Younger than that, they recommend you talk about it. I would say read the parent version. Be ready to have those conversations. This is beautifully illustrated and amazingly gospel-centered. So I highly recommend this. The Gospel in Color, A a Theology of Racial Reconciliation for Families. Um, And there are other books as well. Uh, But you have to continue to seek to be... Educated and, and for adults, I recommend whiteness books. There's a lot of books written on whiteness. Um, Jared read one, White Awake. That's a pun there. White Awake. Uh, and then there's another one called White Fragility, which is written by a non-Christian, but she has a lot of experience in, in culture and in businesses helping have race, racial reconciliation. Very insightful. And there's others. Um, if you want to come to me and ask me, I can tell you more. Um, It's not going to be helpful for you to to study racism unless you first understand whiteness, uh, if you're a white person, Uh, and even a person of color. Understanding whiteness helps with this. As an ideology, again, this is not just about you having white skin. Um, So I want to tell you this. I don't know what you should do. Those are steps. But being defensive or responding out of guilt or being self-righteous in your wokeness Or leaving white people behind because you can't tolerate them, that's not going to be helpful. So don't do those things. There's going to be sacrifice involved here. It's going to be uncomfortable, obviously. Fourth, I'm almost there, guys. Fourth, we diversify our social lives. So I say do this with hungry intentionality. You got to really want it. It Can't just be a good idea. You got to really want to diversify your social lives. You're gonna have to go out of your way. You're gonna have to deal with uncomfortable moments To diversify your social life. So what that looks like is friendships that go beyond just surface level conversation. Uh, we We have to do more than just work with or live near or go to school with people of color. You have to know them and intentionally seek to gain perspective that builds empathy. Otherwise, you'll always stand at a distance and you'll always be suspicious and you'll always have your questions and you'll always be able to look the other way. This requires dealing with uncomfortable emotions and wrestling through concepts. So don't do that alone. Do that with community. Do that with your kids. Do that with brothers and sisters of a different color who can help you understand. I'm going to give you this last point as the band comes back up. Uh, The fifth one is we hold on to hope. It's hard to have an action step that hold on to hope. Like, what does that look like? It's not a physical thing you can hold on to But we have reason to hope because of Christ. This is fixing your eyes on Jesus. This is seeing the ways of this world fall away as you fix your eyes on Jesus and see the kingdom shine a light into the darkness. This is remaining faithful to what's true no matter the sacrifices you make along the way. This is the ultimate mission of the church. Your pain, the pain you feel, the pride you feel, the guilt you feel, the shame you feel are all signals. Not to run or deny or avoid. They're signals. They're gifts from God. Your pride is a gift from God to remind you you need God. Your shame and your guilt are signals God gives you to run to Him. Your Father has arms wide open. He's the Father of us all. So we hang on to hope that He's restoring all things. It just so happens that we have good news for the broken things when we have a world full of brokenness. A Savior, a Redeemer, one who makes all things new. God makes us beautiful, like He made us beautiful in the garden. Sin has broken it. The gospel restores it. It's already not yet. We have reason for hope. And like with any suffering, God is able. He's good, so we know He will. We just don't know when. But even if He doesn't, we praise Him. Even if the suffering continues, we praise Him. Because He's our King, and there's hope, and it might just be beyond this world. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your gospel. I thank you so much for truth. I thank you for, oh God, getting us through this is a heavy thing and I pray that it wouldn't end here, that as I know there are questions and confusion maybe, I pray that you would help us to bring clarity, that we would shine light into dark things, that we would feel conviction for, for sin and repent and trust you to forgive us, that we would see the brokenness around us and see how you have called us and equipped us to address it. That we'd be faithful as your people in this world to see you glorified, to see you worship, to see it be all about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.